Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I have an extremely important conversation for you. For many of you that follow the show, you will know I'm not a huge fan of most politicians. Um, the backstory of this interview is... When I moved to Ocala, Florida, I joined the YMCA and was doing my CrossFit workouts there, much to the amusement of most of the gym goers who had never seen it before. At that time, the manager was Ben Marciano. Now, Ben went on to transition out of the Y and own two gyms of his own, Zone Health and Fitness. But what really drew me to him was he is about to become our mayor here in Ocala. But he also has a very powerful story of overcoming addiction. So between his understanding of health and fitness and the mental health side, this is an individual that I'm actually proud to interview and to me is the kind of person that we need in these leadership positions. So we discuss a host of topics from his early life and some of the contributing factors that led him into his addiction, how a mental health and rehab facility helped him transition into the world of health and fitness, the obesity epidemic, mental health and leadership, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ben Marciano. Enjoy. Well, Ben, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming to my home and doing this interview. Um, someone mentioned that you were running for the mayor of Ocala, which is incredible. And when they said your name, I'm like, oh, that's the dude from from the YMCA from years ago. So uh, here we are sitting in 2023 now. I know you've got a hell of a story to tell, but I want to start by welcoming you to my home. Oh, absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So I'd love to, I know we've got a shorter amount of time, so I'm going to compress it a little bit, but get the backstory first. So where were you born? And tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings? Sure. Um, I was born in Queens, New York. At the age of three, my parents divorced and um, my mother uh, followed my grandfather, who is a retired New York City police officer who moved to Dinellan, uh, Florida. Um, so um, growing up, we my mother um, struggled with addiction, so we um, we lived in extreme poverty. I one of my earliest childhood memories was her literally pushing me in a shopping cart from the grocery store to um, subsidize housing um, that we lived in the back of Denelling because she just didn't have money. Um, so it was uh, it was definitely a rough childhood growing up um, with all the different circumstances that were involved. Now, what about? your dad with this perspective now of the mental health lens that you have and obviously you know soon you're going to be mayor of ocala so opd and ofd um when you look back were there elements of his job that gave him any mental health struggles later in life um so my my grandfather being a cop oh i'm sorry your grandfather my yeah apologies. absolutely i would definitely say yes it, it definitely affected him um he would never talk about it. he was very old school he's not going to share his emotions but i would tell you absolutely and he he drank a lot i think a lot of his drinking was to cover all that he had seen and been through 
So when you were young, obviously we're sitting here now, you're still in great shape. What were you doing and playing as far as sports and athletics? Yeah, so I was left up to my own devices a lot of times. I really did not get into sports until my senior year. I like to share this story because I think it's powerful. My senior uh, freshman year, I went out for basketball and um, I tried out and I was the last guy to get cut. And the coach looked at me and said, you can do one of two things, go home and practice come back next year and hopefully make the team or go home and play video games and come back next year and you have no shot. I chose going home practice and I practiced four hours a day, came back the next year, not only made the team, but started. And it told me that if you want something bad enough, just work hard for it. And uh, so it was a really powerful lesson that's helped me also in business and life. So what about career aspirations? What were you dreaming of becoming when you were in high school? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. So I always wanted to be like my grandfather. It was law enforcement. Um, growing up, um, he would introduce me to the sheriff and, um, I just wanted to make my grandfather proud. I wanted to hear those words. I'm proud of you. Uh, he could never do that. He, the way he, he was German and old school. But, um, anyway, I actually went to school for criminal justice. I graduated, uh, from CF with a degree in criminal justice, went to FSU. Um, and I was in my final year of, um, I was going to get my bachelor's degree in criminal justice and I got arrested for a drug charge. And it changed the trajectory of my life. That's when I got involved in the health club industry. And um, I kind of, um, yeah, it re- really was a reset for me of the direction of my life. It was a really hard time in my life, really low point for me, because I, I, I really did want to be in law enforcement. So. So were you, did you have that one moment in one of the classes that we see in CF where you go down 200 and they're all practicing the speed gun? <laughs> so I pass those guys going, you dicks. Don't, right, don't right, teach right, them right, that. Right, right. Don't teach them that. Right. <laughs> so. Going back to the childhood for a moment, I think one of the real elephants in the room of mental health conversation, certainly in the general public, but even in, in um, fire and police, is, you know, we look at soldiers, police officers, and like, oh, well, you know, James is struggling because you had that minivan that, you know, flipped and those three people were killed. That's why you're going through it. The reality is there was two decades, for me, two and a half decades before I ever put on a firefighter uniform that a lot of people exclude in the mental health conversation. You talked about drug charge. When you look back, you know, what were some of the compounding factors that led you into that in the first place? Yeah, I saw a lot of really um, bad things growing up, um, being in a situation where my mother was in and out of relationships um, um, and not healthy relationships in any way. We moved a lot. Um, There was never security. Um, there were many moments that I was just, just wanted to be safe and I, and I was not in safe situations. Um, the things that I, I saw growing up, I, I can remember one of my earliest childhood memories was being at a party and there being a mirror there and white powder and someone snorting the powder. I had no idea what it was and later in life, but that was something that, that was the, that was the environment I live, lived in. Um, so it was that constant fear of, am I safe? And if you can think about it, uh, happening to a child, um, horrible things, most likely it happened to me growing up. So it definitely laid an imprint on my mind um, for later in life. I was blown away. I've done over 800 uh, interviews now. And the number of people, especially wearing uniforms, a lot of them are, but some of them you know, weren't, the number of people that grew up in domestic violence homes and addiction homes with sexual abuse you know and and they all cram it down and a lot of us that are in uniform it's that kind of it's that shield it's that armor it's that that cape that superhero facade 
and it's honorable to be hurt and then want to be part of the solution. But if left unaddressed, that hurt child is still inside you. You, you just explained it a, a, to a T. So, and then, so I was with my mom until the age of 12, and then I moved in with my grandfather, and uh, my grandfather raised me. And his message always was if you're going to be emotional, I'll show you something to be emotional for. So it was don't express your emotions, keep it inside. That's what a man does. And that's what I learned. And, and I think that later in life, um, how it hurt me is that, uh, you know, I used drugs and alcohol to mask those emotions and not really deal with them. Um, so. So you get arrested for a drug charge. You lose this 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 dream career that you were hoping to enter. Where does that send you next? Yeah, so I started working in the health club industry. Um, I was there was a gold gym in Tallahassee. I started working there and um, loved it. Love what it did for me. It helped build some confidence for me, and uh, I was really good at it. So from there. Um, I got involved and I traveled with a consulting company fixing failing health clubs, but my addiction progressively was getting worse to the point where I lived in Miami and, um, I really was not employable anymore. I was, my addiction was so bad and the owner knew it and he, and he let me go and he said, I hope you get help. And, um, I remember living in a, um, a high rise apartment, 15 floors up. And, um, I literally have to wake up in the morning to a drink to not go into a seizure. That's how bad the physical withdrawals were. And there was a morning that I had a bottle of vodka and I had nobody left in my life. I had burnt every bridge and I grabbed the vodka and I swigged it. And I said, if there's a God, you'll do something. And I had every intention of walking to the balcony and ended my life. And as I'm walking to the balcony to open the door, my phone rang and it was my mom. And she said, something told me to call you. I said, wow, something told you to call me. And she said, yes. And uh, she said, I called the place in Ocala. It's a center's on Airport Road. They have a bed. Would you take help? And I said, yeah. I got my car, left everything that I had. I drove to the center's in 2005 and checked in. So the center's is actually a, a you know an element of trauma for myself. There was a, a huge um, abuse of power in my son's middle school. He was going through some personal things, um, and was just, you know, basically going through an emotional uh, moment, not violent, not threatening, nothing, just kind of breaking down and crying. And between the principal and the the resource officer, they, without even calling me, they sent him to the centers for a three-day hold, totally disregarding all protocol, um, which traumatized the shit out of him, yeah, as I'm sure you can imagine. Absolutely. Um, so I know the centers well. But that facility, and I'll be very clear, you know, that kind of hold is imperative for some people that's what it's you know it's why we shouldn't be sell, sending you know upset children that are you know going through some stuff because one home is very very uh like you said there's not a feeling of security in a home so they're you know they're hoping that the school is going to be the one that helps them um but you know there is a need for you know those kind of facilities when it comes to deep addiction when it comes to suicide ideation homicidal ideation um so talk to me about your experience and what was it about that that helped you start to turn the corner yeah so when i got there um i remember begging them to let me in i had no money so they had to scholarship me and uh I, you know, they say that what happens with your addictions, I started drinking when I was uh, 17 years old. So essentially, your your growth stops at that point. I think I was 20, I was 25 when I went to the center. So I, essentially, I was a young 17 year old boy, I would I would say, honestly, probably closer to 12, if I had to guess with my emotions and where I was. 
So essentially, once the drug and alcohol was gone, we had to get to the root of what was going on. And they had therapists there that could help me that and, um, and, and really work a program. But it really was ripping the layers of the onion back to get to the core of what was causing this addiction for me. And um, a lot of it was that trauma that I experienced, things that I just never wanted to talk about. I was not going to share with anybody. Uh, but the more that I could get that stuff out and realize that it was not my fault um, and um, really start to process it, I was able to start to heal. And um, so I stayed for six months. Um, I built a program of recovery. I got a sponsor and in recovery and someone who kind of who's been there before who guided me through it. And he, I remember when I checked out, he said, listen, I don't want you to go out and try and hit a home run. I want you to stay humble. I want you to focus on your recovery and serving God. And uh, so if that means cleaning a gym, let's do that as opposed to you managing a gym. So essentially, there was a gym called Lord's Gym on 200. And I went there as a trainer and I would help with whatever uh, he needed. But it was it was not a big commitment on my part because my commitment was to building rebuilding my foundation in my life. Beautiful. Well, so what took you from there to um, actually before I say that, you have six months of sobriety you have a sponsor, you know, so you're starting to build some of these tools. What were other tools that allowed you to continue down the the road of growth rather than fall back down into despair? You know, putting really good people around me. Um, one of the things they teach you early in recovery is don't hang out with the newcomers because, um, again, you have both have really bad habits. You don't have positive way of thinking. You can't identify your issues. So I, I put myself around really good, solid people. Um, I had a really good faith foundation um, that um, was was important. Um, I will tell you, while I was at Lord's Gym, I was in there. One day, I see this beautiful woman walk in, and I'm in awe of her. I run to the front, and I meet her, and uh, I, there was something about her. I could tell she, she was special, and I felt like this is going to be my wife. And it was just, but I, looking at her, I, this woman is way too good for someone like me. Anyway, I offered a free personal training session. We, we had a training session and we went on a date and, um, we dated for a couple of weeks and I couldn't share my past with her. I was too ashamed. And, uh, we were driving back from St. Augustine one day and I felt this guilt over me and I pulled over the car and I said, Danielle, I said, I got something to share with you. I said, you are way too good for someone like me. Um, in fact, I was pretty much homeless from drug addiction. Um, and, um, I've done some bad things in my life and you deserve way better for me. And she looked back at me with tears in her eyes and said, that's not who you are today. And I see who you are and who you're going to be. And I want to be there for that. And I love you regardless. And I never felt unconditional love before. And I really think that propelled me into, uh, the 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 next level gave me hope something to push for feeling that love that i've never felt before so that was extremely powerful in helping me become who i am today it's amazing how often the um the words guilt and shame come up i've got a friend uh, chad belger who's actually a bc and battalion chief in in marion now he's been on the show twice the first time we met was right before he was on this massive spiral down and now he's, I think it's three plus years sober, runs a recovery program in a CrossFit gym. Amazing. But again, that aha moment of realizing if these things happen to you as a child, you know, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of need security is the base. That's the most important thing. And so to get that mind shift from, you know, I'm so ashamed of what I did to I was a victim. Yes. You know, no one, no one asked, you know, I didn't say, hey, come into my room and do this yeah. thing to me or, you know take drugs around me or beat my mom in front of me, whatever it is. And the moment you can shift from that guilt, and like you said, you are good enough for another human being. That was a massive shift. Oh, yeah. It was tremendous. 
So I just want to say as well, it's your wedding anniversary today. So thank you, Danielle, for uh, allowing you know this this conversation on this special day. Absolutely. Um, so you said about Lord's Gym. How did that take you to the YMCA? So I was there, and um, it was a couple of weeks later that um, a woman walked in to tour the gym, and I took her on a tour. And she said, "I'm not here to buy a membership from you. I'm here to take you to come work for me at the YMCA." And I said, "Well, ma'am, I appreciate that, but I have no intention on staying in Ocala." Well, one day I'm driving by this Y and I just felt this desire to go check it out. And I pulled in and I walked in and she was standing at the front. She goes, we've been waiting on you. What took you so long? So I was thinking she was going to make me this unbelievable offer. Um, so I was excited to sit down and talk to her. And she said, Ben, listen, things are in dire constraints. We're in a point where we don't even know if we'll keep the doors open. Would you consider working for me for $10 an hour? I was making more as a, as a trainer at this point. And uh, we're probably going to need you to work like 60 hours a week, but you can only get paid for 40. But I promise you, if you can help turn things around, um, we um, we will take care of you. And I remember telling her, well, thank you, but no, thank you. And um, kind of walked out. And I remember going home that night and I was, I was dating Danielle, my wife at the time, and I'd shared with her and she's always been the voice of reason for me. I said, Danielle, I felt like I was being called to work at the YMCA, but I can't take this major step back financially. We, you know, trying to build a, a life and some stability. And she said, you need to take a leap of faith and trust if this is God's plan for you, you need to do that. So I went back and I accepted the job. And uh, that was in 2005 and um, really put a lot of the things that I learned in the health club industry in place and, and the why I took off and did very well. So I've told YMCA stories before because I think we came, I moved back here in 2008 um, and uh, I had just got in being exposed to CrossFit when I was in um, Huntington Beach when I, one of my friends there when I was at Anaheim as a firefighter. And so I came to the Y, my little boy, who's uh, in, in the other room right now, I think he was, God, two and a half, three or something. So we put him into your daycare, which was always awesome, by the way. But then we'd either play racquetball or I'd do my CrossFit workout. And I just, I told this story before, I just the looks on the faces when I was flinging myself around. There was one dude from PD that put some rings up. I don't know if you remember that. Uh -huh. He and I were about the only two people in the whole gym that knew what the hell was going on. Right. And people would be like, why are you killing yourself? And, <laughs> and you know, the, guy, the high school guys would be laughing. But I've talked about this in the past. Fast forward about two more years, three years, now it's on television. The same high school kids are like, bro, can you show me how to do that? Right, exactly. So, but it, it was a, it was a great, great gym. But I, one of my memories is just trying to figure out a way to do a CrossFit workout, you know, amongst all the machines and right. you know, regular people. Right, right, right. <laughs> Everybody's watching you. You were their amusement, I remember. Absolutely. Yep. So, um, you were in the Y for a while. What made you take the leap of faith to actually start your own gym? Yeah, so I, I worked my way up to vice president over 10 years at the Y. And, um, you know, it was just an amazing career. I learned so much. But one day I was driving to, I had locations in Orlando. I remember driving and I just felt like there was an uneasiness about where I, where I was in my life. So I just kept praying. And one day my wife and I went out on our boat to Eaton's Beach and we ran into a businessman out there and his name was Tom Ingram. And he, he said, Ben, he said, you've done a great job with the YMCA. Would you ever want to open your own gym? And I said, Tom, there's no way. I said, I just raised $5 million to expand this location in Ocala. <clears throat> I don't think it would look too good if I were to open a gym in Ocala. He said, well, if anything ever changes, you let me know. Well, that night I went home and in my dream, I had a dream that I was, op I opened my own gym. So I woke up the next morning and shared it with my wife and we had been offered all kinds of great opportunities 
in the community to take over businesses, a lot of financial rewards, but nothing felt like my purpose. And Danielle would always realign me to my purpose. So she said, I really feel like this is a calling for you to do this. So let's pray on it. And um, we, this was 2014 or 2013. And uh, I knew the guy who bought Compass Health and Fitness. It was Brick City Fitness. I called him up one day and I said, Bill, can I meet with you? And I drove up to his gym and we had a conversation. I said, Bill, would you ever want to sell your gym? And he just looked at me with like a stare on his face. And I, I knew I hit a chord. He said, I cannot believe you're in here today. In two days, we were going to shut this gym down. He goes, whatever you need, I'll help you to help with the transition. So that's how it started. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So we were talking before we hit record about, you know, the, the kind of the genesis and the metamorphosis of the gym from a gym space to some of the more holistic healing elements as well. So kind of walk me through that. You, yeah. you, I remember Brick City. So you go initially kind of a... A regular, what they call, quote, quote unquote, globo gym, with a super fancy bathroom that felt yeah. like you were in a country club. Sure. So talk, walk me through that kind of timeline. Yeah. So, but when I, when I did buy the gym, it, it was probably more like a bodybuilder's gym. Um, and it had about a thousand members at the time. And um, we had a vision that we wanted to make a gym for everybody, not just one particular market where people would feel come, come in. And they may be coming for fitness, but they feel like they're part of a community or a family. That was extremely important. So we, we had to hire, we knew we had to hire staff that had the heart to serve. And it would start with our staff. And if their heart was to serve, hopefully that would infiltrate down into our members. And I'll tell you, when I was in there the first, when I was in there the first couple months, members were so angry from the experiences they had. They didn't trust me. They didn't like me. Uh, there were many times where I had, really bad confrontations. Um, my life was threatened a couple times. Um, literally had to call uh, the chief of police to help me. Um, Which was down the street anyway. <laughs> down the street uh, to help with the transition. Uh, the gym was losing $40,000 a month when we took it over. We bought it for a dollar and just took over the debt of the facility. So we had a major obstacles to overcome. In fact, nine months in, we ran out of money and um, we had $10,000 in bills on the counter. And I remember thinking, why did I do this? And I had a sharp pain in my chest. I think I'm having a heart attack. I screamed for help. They rushed me to the hospital. I had a panic attack. And the doctor looked at me and said, I don't know what's going on with you. I was 35 at the time. He said, you have to make a change. Otherwise, I'm afraid the next thing will be the real thing. So that night I went home and I prayed. And that month, Zone made money and, and did very well. But as far as how it's it's transformed over time, um, we, the staff we hire, like I said, it's about their heart, but there's also a lot of people that we hire. It's their second chance in life because of me, where I've been from. That's important to me is to first and foremost, serve the people that work for me. And, um, so we hire really good people that care. So that's what creates the community environments. It's different than most facilities. You don't feel that you might be left up to your own or people don't care. Our staff truly do care and, and make a difference. But also we wanted to look at the whole wellness perspective. So our gym is called zone. So it's broken up by zones of things that people might like to do or level of, of fitness that they're comfortable in. So like you said, we actually have a CrossFit facility at our gym. That is very unusual for a big gym to have a CrossFit zone. Um, and it's extremely popular. We have a boxing zone. We have a cardio group exercise zone, a meditation zone. Um, and when I talk about meditation, we offer yoga, but we actually have a room where you go in and you shut your mind down. And it it is really set up to really train your mind to uh, start relaxing. Um, and I really love that. And I tell my staff, 
That is something I want you to do every day because we want our staff healthy so that they can push it to our members. We have cold plunge pools, which are amazing, not only for recovery, but the mind. Um, and I use that and it's been uh, amazing for me. Um, sauna, steam room. So it's really the whole level of fitness. Um, why well, I say spirit, mind and body at zone. Beautiful. Well, I want to get to the, the mayor position, but just before we get to that, um, chronologically, you're a gym owner. There's a you know, pandemic. This is James Gearing's opinion now. What I saw through my eyes was you got an opportunistic virus that is extremely dangerous for people that have vulnerability. That might be obesity, diabetes. It might be some sort of um, you know um, abnormality physiologically, or like a lot of people listening, it might be that you do shift work and your immune system is destroyed. Um, what should have been done with those two years, in my opinion, is the prioritize prioritization of fitness time in nature, meditation, sleep, community. But what I saw was gyms, parks, beaches closed down and alcohol and fast food delivered to the house. What, and then obviously the economic element of closing gyms. Um, you know, Ted and Iron Legion, they did great work and they started, everyone shut down when they were supposed to, but then the moment the, the tap was even opened a little bit, they were, you know, outside classes and just figuring out a way to get everyone back into the gym and have community again. So what was that experience for you as a gym owner who had a struggling gym, finally starts making money, and then this comes through? Yeah, no, it was definitely a tough time. Um, even when we were shut down, we we, we knew we, we wanted to keep our employees um, employed making money. So we had a cafe, we had cleaning supplies, so we would do drives where we just let um, people come up for food, uh, first responders. We were feeding first responders. We did, um, cleaning supplies that we were giving away. We had tons of, uh, sanitizers and solutions. So we were constantly, um, just trying to serve the community during the time that we were shut down. But, um, I will tell you that, um, as soon as we could reopen, we reopened and, um, it was, I'll tell you the people were so thankful. And I will tell you the people that, um, that were away from the facility. There's, you have to realize there's a lot of people that come in to zone that are older that were their family. So they're away from their family for a month or two and they were falling apart. They, they would literally come up to me with, with tears in their eyes and say, thank you for this place. Thank you for this community. And thank you for opening up. Cause there still were a lot of restrictions in other areas, even in states of Florida, depending on the local government, our local government, our mayor was like, no, open these facilities up. We need this. And, and to me, it made no sense. Like you said, is we're going to shut down a health facility that could help build your immunity, help build uh, your physical health, which can combat, can combat this. It just really made no sense at all. So, um, um, we really got out and it really, and the people were so thankful that we were open and ready for them when they could get back in there. Yeah, I saw the same thing. I mean, I saw it in my CrossFit gym. I saw it in my jujitsu. You know, the, the we'd have to go in the back door for jujitsu for a while. Is everyone cool with being on top of each other? Okay, let's let's go. And everyone was very responsible and we were all, you know, testing and everything. But there's a certain point where you're like, okay, we, everyone shut down. We waited to see what happened. And I have to say, apolitically, the decisions that um, Ron DeSantis made for the state of Florida, I thought were excellent. Yeah. Take it seriously, you know, release a little bit, reassess, release a little bit. And the irony was we've got a high population of, of geriatrics in this state. And actually the numbers were pretty good compared to a lot of states. So I think that speaks volumes. It does, absolutely. So with the, the health lens now, you are about to be the mayor of Ocala. Congratulations. Um, with this health and fitness lens, we have an increasingly obese population, especially, you know, our young kids. 
what is your perspective of trying to to make a dent in that, whether it's in the general population or within our schools? Yeah, I know. And um, so I, I saw yesterday or the day before came out in a news article that we were rated one of the most unhealthy cities in the state of Florida. And that just breaks my heart. And I, I do believe that everything starts with physical and mental health. If you're, if you're, uh, not dealing with chronic illness, um, or a major physical problem, then it's just not important to you. But once that happens to you, that takes precedence over everything. So I tell people, don't wait, don't wait until that, that heart attack occurs or diabetes or a major health concern. Because fitness is a lifestyle. It is something that you are, I tell people all the time is that you want the fountain of youth, work out, eat healthy and train your mind. Um, and then the other component is mental illness. One out of four of our local residents that we know of are struggling with mental illness. I'd, I'd tell you it's probably closer to two out of four because there's a lot of people that just don't share it. And, um, so for me, as, uh, the next mayor of Ocala, big focus will be the physical and mental health of our community. And, um, for the, the physical aspect, um, there are so many ways that we can get people active and moving, getting together. I look forward to partnering with the gyms. I'm going to form committees with, uh, fitness people in our community and come up with a game plan of of how we can really get our community active and moving. Um, from a mental component, my story I will use to educate people on mental illness and um, hopefully provide courage um, to step out and know that it is okay to talk about it and get help. I think that's the biggest barrier is nobody wants to talk about it. They're ashamed. But um, the true courage comes when you bring it to light. And we do have facilities in our community that are available, but I just think people just don't know about it. So we need to make sure that people are aware of those com- uh, those those programs and uh, make sure that they know the doors open for them. So we're really going to, I want to be an example for the country of how we can be physically and mentally healthy. Um, so I'm excited. Now, what about your perspective? I know Marion is basically overseeing a lot of the schools. Um, to me, when we come out of two years of a pandemic, I was going, okay, well, beautiful. Like, for example, the environment, Mother Nature just showed us if we stop polluting the shit out of her, she actually recovers. And there's yeah. dolphins in, you know, the was it the Nile, I think? Um, no, the Venice, excuse me, the Venice canals and the LA air was clearing up and it was just beautiful. And then, you know, short time later, boom, it was forgotten and now it's masks and gloves on all the pavements. Um, but it was an amazing opportunity. You had a captive audience to really share the health message. We have soda vending machines in our school. The cafeterias are serving Cisco processed food. I mean, Cisco's the delivery company, I know, but you know, processed food. And then we have PE programs that are slashed and slashed and slashed. I know, you know it, it's bigger than just the mayor of Ocala, but if there was a message to everyone that actually gets to make a decision, what can we do in our schools to improve the health? Yeah, you're starting like we talked about. Your childhood years are so important. You're forming the habits for later in life. Let's teach them these skills now that they would carry into their life um, later. And we know that nutrition plays a role in your mind. Yeah, I mean, when I eat healthy, my mind is so much clearer, right? So we're going to feed them processed food, things that creates brain fog um, and makes it really hard for them to be able to focus. So I, I think... It starts with the right message. It starts with the right person. Um, the way that I will lead, it will, it will, it will be not to beat people over the head, but to build relationships and trust with people and hopefully be able to educate them on the importance of this. But, um, the way that I look at the mayor is you're a voice for the community and I will be that voice for our community. Now, what about from a holistic, you know, kind of organic food lens? We are surrounded by incredibly fertile soil not for all all foods obviously but you know we're surrounded by farmland um we saw that there was a huge bottleneck when it came to the food supply but yet so many 
you know, states around this country have the ability to grow all kinds of things locally. What about with that lens, kind of bolstering local farms and trying to, to I don't know if Ocala is the city, but right. but again, that philosophy of, of bringing agriculture and supporting local clean food that doesn't have to be irradiated and shipped 2,000 miles. Yeah, no, and I, I think it just, again, you have to educate people. I hate to say it, it's almost like you have to scare people with the reality of what's going to happen, right? Because really when people change is when they hit that, that moment of, oh man, something bad happens. That's what we see a lot of times when they walk into the gym, something bad just happened. So now I got to make this change. So as much as we can educate, um, we can show the benefit. Um, we all know that um, any kind of fitness regimen, you want to see results 80%, I think even higher is through nutrition. Um, we have a, a really, um, I'm, I'm, if you haven't had time, we have the downtown market where a lot of our local farmers come out and sell produce and different things. That's been great. And it's really busy. I think we need to do a better job of marketing that. I don't think people realize that we offer that and the benefits of that. So that would be a focus that I would like to do. My wife personally has, uh, we have a garden at our house and we homeschool our kids. So part of their education is being out there learning this, starting this at a young age. So hopefully they will carry it later in life. I think those are things that we could do at our schools. Um, but also maybe we, we can do classes for parents to teach them how to, to do their own, uh, gardens at home. Um, because for my wife, it's part of it is the healthy food, but part of it is for her mind. She loves it. She loves being out there in nature and doing this. So I think there's a lot of benefits to that. Well, we talk about multi-generational trauma and obviously in your case, it's a perfect example because there was a reason why your mom drank, you know, and, yeah. and like you said, your grandfather struggled with things from, from his service. Yeah. But I think there's also a multi-generational um, deficit when it comes to education. And, you know, if you grew up in, you know, where, where you were born, if you're in the inner city in New York somewhere, how are you really going to know how pea potatoes are grown and, you know, how to prepare cauliflower and all these things? You're not. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of, um, again, looking down the nose, kids today rolling their eyes and, you know, oh, these, these families, they need to have, you know, family structure. Well, yeah, but if you're two generations in, you just don't. Right. You just don't. So right. you're too late. So it's rebuilding and educating. And I love that idea, not just the children, yeah. but give the opportunities for the families to get involved. Because the pride of actually, you know, long-term growing, but if not, at least going to the farmer's market, buying fresh veg and learning how to make a basic meal, you know, that would that would then send them down a rabbit hole of, oh my God, this tastes amazing. Right. You know, let's throw away the frozen pizza and let's uh, let's start doing this more often. Exactly. And then when you have fast food once in a while, it's okay. It is. You don't need to be extreme. Exactly. And I'll tell you, like, um, I've gone through diets, but I will tell you, you know, they make, they make this food to be addicting. Like you literally crave it when you're on it. But when you come off of it and you, you'll go through some sort of feeling, um, I don't know if it's a withdrawal, but it's uncomfortable for a couple of days. But once you're done, you, you feel amazing. It's just getting through those first couple, if it's a week, two weeks of that, that, that food coming out of your system. And, but when I'm eating healthy, um, it's amazing how you feel. So you got to feel that you got to feel the benefit and then you want more of that. So another thing on the mental health side, before we get to the first responder community, um, I was talking to uh, the CEO of Newcom. We were just talking about the app today. And he was in the psychology world his whole career. His parents are both psychologists. And he said that a lot of the homelessness, I didn't know about this, was actually caused by a lot of the mental health facilities that they defunded, basically, and put them all out into the street. And again, multi-generational, you know, that was a huge thing. We do have homelessness in the city of Ocala. I personally struggle with people that and i talk about this a lot that spend a certain day of the week in a religious building and then come out and look down at someone who's homeless 
to me, you know, the origin story is always going to be trauma. You know, some of us are fortunate enough to have mentors and the ability to, to take that right path. And some just don't. They're devoid of that that person. So what is your perspective of how we, um, you know, proactively address that rather than just ferrying them off to a different state or uh, sure. county? Yeah, so... Um pretty much at a point of where I was homeless. Um, you know, I have a unique perspective on it. I will tell you that um, you you hit the nail on the head when you said they definitely have mental illness. I would imagine if you're homeless, you probably are struggling with some sort of mental illness, but it's also then layered with some sort of drug addiction most of the time. Um, I have a theory that I think would work. Um, you know, I, I've hired people that were homeless that um, that are uh, rebuilt their life back on their feet and are successful today. And one in particular is a good friend of mine. His name is Jeff. And uh, he was homeless for 25 years. And if you look at him, you can tell that he was homeless for 25 years, but he's, he's doing great today. Um, uh, so I asked him, I said, Jeff, what, what changed it for you? How did you get off the street? And he said, you know, Ben, he said, I was on the street. He'd make about $60 an hour um, being on the street corner, people giving him money. And then he'd take the money and go buy drugs. He was heavily addicted to drugs. And I said, Jeff, so how that changed? He said, one day a guy walked up to me that was homeless that I remember, but he would look different that day. He was dressed. He could tell that his life was different. He said, Jeff, do you remember me? And he said, I do. He said, Jeff, I've changed my life. And I'm not going to give you money today, but I'll give you something much better. There's a program out there right now that has a bed. Would you take the help? And uh, he, I was at a point where I heard the message. I knew the guy. I, I knew where he was. And I believe that something there was better. It gave me hope. And I got in the car and I went and he checked in. He stayed there for six months and the guy mentored him through the program. And then he got out and rebuilt his life. So my theory is this, is that um, I believe that we can we can get people off the streets, get them help with the right help, with the right message. Um, and I'd love to utilize people that have been down that road and now are on the other side. That's a whole program of recovery is you've been there. I can connect with you. I can share my story with you. Now let me help you. Um, and a lot of the problem is, is that there's somewhere along the way that the, the, the piece of the puzzle is not completely put together. So for example, if that guy walked up to Jeff and there wasn't a bed available at that time when the guy was ready to make help, then you've just lost the person. So there has to be a system in place. I, so what I'd love to do is, is have beds available on the spot. Use guys like Jeff. We go on the street. We talk to them. We connect with them. We let them know, hey, we, we know that it's been hard. We've been there. Um, but we also know that there's a solution. Let us help you. And then we try to encourage them to get into a program and we mentor them through the process. And now those guys get better and now they become part of the program. And, um, I think it, I think it will work. In fact, I know it will work. I feel, I feel like it is an answer to our problem. One of the programs that works well in, in the first responder profession now is called peer support. And really the simple concept is someone that understands what you're going through is the person that you go to. Now they're not the counselor. They're not the addiction specialist. They're a peer. But they're the conduit between you and, you know, what ultimately is going to help. And that makes perfect sense. Who better? And I've had this, you know, so often people who overcome addiction, overcome, you know, a near suicide attempt, uh, have this post-traumatic growth. And then all their peers come out of the woodwork like, hey, you know, can I tell you something a sec? I can imagine it's the same with homelessness. When you, and I've had people that were homeless on the show that became, you know, fire chiefs and all kinds of incredible things. We're all people. And yes. We're all that little toddler once that was laughing and chasing butterflies. None of us dreamed of living under a bridge or selling our body for, yeah. for money. Yeah. You know, so to have that humanity and put it back into this proactively as a Christian, as a Hindu, as yeah. a whatever you, you know, subscribe to, 
um, that is how you fix it. And I would argue even monetarily, you're going to save money hand over fist, not having to pour all these reactively, but rather proactively. Absolutely. And it all starts with love and compassion, right? If, um, if I go there um, and um, uh, if I'm, I'm trying to beat the message over someone's head, I've never been able to be effective that way. The message has always been delivered so much better when I show love and compassion and understanding, and then people are willing to listen. Uh, and um, so I, I'm excited to try that. We are going to try that in Ocala. Um, that is a program that we will be working to put in place, and I'm, I'm excited to see what the outcomes will be. Beautiful. Well, I got one more topic because I want to be mindful of your time. Sure. Um, the first responder profession, especially fire, which is obviously the one I know best, Marion is the worst case example. Ocala is you know a little better, but my brothers and sisters in uniform um, traditionally work what they call 24 on, 48 off, which we mythically refer to as one day on, two days off. Now, no civilian works a 24-hour day. So it's three days on, one day off, actually. And it's not 10 days a month. It's 30 days a month when you add it up. So Ocala, I think they have the Kelly Day, if I'm not mistaken. So every three weeks, they'll get an extra day, but still a 48-hour week when the average civilian is tapping out usually, you know, on paper at least, at 40 um, I have talked about this a lot. It's, I think it's behind so much of the obesity, cancer, mental health issues that we, we suffer from is the sleep deprivation element. Unaddressed childhood trauma is a big thing. I mean, I know two people from um, the city of Ocala fire that we've lost to drug overdoses. So, and it's not a big department, it's just a few stations. Um, my goal is to make the, what we call 2472 the industry standard. Because if you look at the true economy of investing in your people and giving responders the rest and recovery they need, you again would save hand over fist over, you know, workman's comp claims, overtime covering, you know, lawsuits because we make mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. So with that lens, I mean, this is probably kind of new information for you. Talk to me about the first responder professions, because I think if you improve the conditions around them and you put the bar back where it needs to be, you're going to have a lot more people lining up to do to that do job. Yeah. Right now, I think we've had that 18 and a heartbeat mentality. And clearly, Marion's a perfect example. You can't hire enough people because everyone can look on the internet and go, oh, firefighters are dying left, right and center. Yeah. So yeah. any any perspective that you have on that? Yeah, first of all, um, I have so much respect for first responders. I, in the last two months, I've had the opportunity to do ride-alongs with both. And I'm just blown away with the scenarios they have to be in every day. You know, you have to be a mental health counselor. You have to save lives. You have to be a dad in certain situations. I mean, the, the, it runs the gamut. It really does take uh, a special person to serve and do that. Um, so... Um, I, I just have the utmost respect, but I, I do, I'm a huge component of proper sleep. Um, I could tell you when I sleep well, I'm a completely different person. So to have that night of, um, where you're probably being interrupted every hour, maybe less of having to go out, I'm imagining that storing in your mind. And then the next couple nights, you're probably not sleeping as good. So I think that, um, I, I think that, Yes, we have to look at new ways to be able to take care of our first responders. If something that we're doing is not working, we have to look at it and look at what is the best options out there. Um, and I do believe, um, I, I see the county has stepped up and recently made some changes and it, and I'm excited to see that they're doing what they need to do. And I, I believe the same thing will be for the city. Um, but I'm always going to be for supporting our first responders and taking care of them because that's who takes care of us. You know, why does everyone want to move to Ocala, Florida? Well, we're one of the safest places to live in the country, like we talked about. 
I want to be safe, right? That's first and foremost. I think that's the foundational. We need to feel safety. Well, that's what you guys provide for us every day. So we have to make sure that we're taking care of you guys and looking at what's going to be the best ways to keep our guys safe so that they can keep us safe. Beautiful. Yeah. And in November, we have the research project with IHMC, one of the most revered research companies in, in the States, if not the world. Um, where they'll finally collate all the data and we'll be able to present it to these, you know, city and council members and be like, look, this is, this is how far from human performance you are. And this is hopefully they'll be able to storytell. This is the immense, you know, money that we're wasting yeah. by destroying our people. Yeah. And that's what they need to see, right? They need to be able to see how is it going to not only benefit our guys, but benefit our community. Um, and I think once they see that, they, they'll, how else would they not be on board? Absolutely. So. Well, I'm going to end here. You have a, you know, an anniversary to spend with your family. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you also for your courageous leadership. We were raised as young men with, you know, especially as you said with your granddad, with this facade of masculinity that, you know, rubs some dirt in it, you know, don't, boys don't cry. And that's created so many coffins and folded flags in the world. So we need the leaders of the world to be vulnerable, tell their stories, and normalizes mental health conversations. So I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you.